0: Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of my podcast. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has decided to step down from the bench, most likely at the end of the High Court's term, which comes in June. This has fueled horse race-style speculation about who President Joe Biden will name to replace him. In point of fact, we may know the President's choice by the time you hear this podcast. Maybe not. Yet the fact that Biden has pledged to nominate a black woman has apparently frightened some conservatives to the point of frenzy. They call it reverse racism, divisive, affirmative action, and they're certain that his choice will be some type of radical socialist. Not that Joe Biden is a radical socialist, but he's going to name one to the high court. We do need to keep a couple of things in mind through all this no matter who the president chooses, the current six to three balance of the court will not change. It is decidedly tilted to the right. We should also keep in mind that it won't take a supermajority to get this particular justice confirmed. Thank God for small favors in this regard. Now, moving forward, there are three different people, as I mentioned, who are looking or possibly going to become the next Supreme Court Justice. Both The New York Times and Washington Post have focused on these choices, which is fascinating in and of itself. Both papers name the same three women. There's no question that all three persons noted have the background to serve on the court. That's for those people who say Biden's promise to appoint a woman is some type of affirmative action pick, which would be, of course, complete, and utter nonsense. Here are the facts. The first black woman to serve as an appeals court judge, a federal appeals court judge, usually a springboard to the Supreme Court, was appointed by then President Jimmy Carter in 1979. More than 40 years later, as Joe Biden took office, only seven more black women had been appointed. I wasn't going to get into detail about the so-called top three contenders, but what the hey? According to the Post, the leading candidate is Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and previously clerked for Justice Bryan. She's also a former public defender, which gives her some gravitas, rightful gravitas I'd say, with progressives. Also in the running, is California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, who clerked for former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Judge Brown Jackson graduated from Harvard Law School. Justice Kruger from Yale. The X factor here is that the third reported contestant, Judge J. Michelle Childs, is a federal district court judge from South Carolina. Now, she also has a bit less, uh, uh, well, she has a non-Ivy League background. She went to law school at the University of South Carolina. But here's the catch. She is a favorite of Congressman Jim Clyburn. That would be the same Jim Clyburn whose endorsement of Joe Biden helped him a great deal on his road to the White House. She's the only one of the three, as I mentioned, that didn't graduate from an Ivy League school yet don't underestimate her chances. Jim Clyburn carries a good deal of weight with Biden, and he deserves it. In a way, I have to say, it really doesn't matter if it's one of these three or someone beyond this shortlist. The fact is, this president has several hyper-qualified women to choose from, and I emphasize hyper-qualified women. There will always be opposition to black women breaking through the glass ceiling that has been in place for generations. And I could run that history by you, but I don't have all that much time. Now, one of them will be elevated to the highest court in the land. Hopefully, she will be, at least in terms of her time on the bench, reliable, uh, reliably, I should say, progressive in her way of interpreting the Constitution, which is what the Supreme Court essentially is there to do. Remember, they rule on the constitutionality of a whole host of questions. At one time, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that it was okay to create separate separate but equal education, accommodation, etc. facilities for whites and blacks. Supreme Court ruled that. So you realize that time, in theory, is supposed to make perhaps Supreme Court justices wiser? Now, if we could just get a voting rights bill passed, that would be heaven. Up next, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Spotify. And what exactly is Spotify. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. I have to admit I've been a fan of Neil Young since I was in high school. I'll further admit that my favorite songs of his were not the ones that he became famous for. I'm not going to get into which ones they were, uh, but they were, for me, milestones in my relatively young life at the time. I've also enjoyed some of Joni Mitchell's music, but not as much as Neil Young. I am glad to hear that they've taken a principled stand with the streaming giant, Spotify. Both have pulled their music off, the service as a result of misinformation spouted by one Joe Rogan, who hosts a podcast on Spotify. The misinformation comes in the form of all sorts of fake news about vaccines. Young put it in the form of an ultimatum, either Rogan or him. Spotify chose Rogan. To understand why, you have to take a deep dive into the economics of the music business as well as the economics of podcasting. On the music side, you have this. Spotify says it pays out 70% of what it takes in from music streaming to pay royalties. You might ask, if that's the case, why does it take somewhere between 229 and 315 streams for a musician to make a dollar on that site? If they're putting out 70% of The money that they get, if they're paying it right back out the door in royalties, how come the artists aren't getting that money? If it takes so much and so much streaming to make a dollar for God's sake. Well, that's another topic for another day. What needs to be understood is this. Podcast hosting is more lucrative for Spotify, at least in the short run. Three years ago, they pledged to spend a half billion dollars to elbow their way into what they called at the time, quote, the emerging podcast marketplace. And spend they did, gobbling up podcast sites like there was no tomorrow. Their prized acquisition was Rogan, host of the Joe Rogan Experience. They paid a whopping $100 million for the exclusive rights to his work past, present, and future. All that money has apparently paid off. Spotify has passed Apple Podcasts as the largest provider of podcasts in the country. So in the end, it all came down to money. Spotify is betting that any short-term loss of subscribers upset at losing, uh, losing Neil Young and Joni Mitchell will be more than offset by Rogan's 11 million listeners per episode. Young has called on other musicians to take their catalogs off Spotify, and from what I hear, a couple of them have already elected to do so, including Nils Lofgren. Uh, The common thread is that none of these particular musicians are kids anymore, but their catalogs are extremely lucrative. So Spotify may take a short-term hit. Many iconic musicians, however, and iconic bands have sold their back catalog for huge amounts of money. That means they've given up control over where their music is heard. In the case of Neil Young, leaving Spotify will cost him 60% of his streaming revenue. That's not me saying it, that's what Neil Young is saying. And yet, he's taken a stand against foolishness in the name of commerce, as has Joni Mitchell. You might ask yourself how a person who spouts garbage, even in the face of getting COVID himself, manages to be worth 100 million bucks. The answer, I'm afraid, lies in the society that we have become. Influencers, clickbait, TikTok, some of it clever, some of it not so much, and failing upward have replaced dialogue, critical thinking, and most forms of civility. Now, I'm a relatively recent Spotify subscriber. I use it only to create playlists with a relatively recent and, in some cases, old, hard-to-get songs. I'm giving some serious thought to cutting it loose, though, since I believe, or at least I'd like to believe, that I have a lot more in common with Neil Young than I do with Joe Rogan. The problem, also, though, is that for people who are not, like, you know, tech savvy like me, it's difficult to figure out how to cut Spotify loose and then ask yourself, where do you go? And can you take the playlists that you've made on Spotify, which I spend a lot of time doing uh, because I love music. Can I move them over? I'm not so sure I possibly can. I don't know. But I think once I get my act together, that may be a move I might make because I do have more in common with a Neil Young than I do with a Joe Rogan, even though I do a podcast. Ain't nobody paying me a hundred million bucks, but that's not really the point. The point is if a hundred million dollars is what it takes for you to spout misinformation about vaccines, possible alternatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, That's blood money as far as I'm concerned. Joe Rogan can keep it. Spotify can keep it. And finally, an oath keeper stays in jail. And what's up with Republicans and the Ukraine? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection, and thanks so much for staying with us. The collective nations of the West, led by the U.S., has trained its eyes on the goings-on in the Ukraine. Russia has amassed 100,000 troops at its border with its neighbor. President Vladimir Putin wants the West, among other things, to pledge they will never admit the Ukraine to NATO membership, something the West is extremely hesitant to do. This has led to the deployment of far fewer troops than 100,000 to face the Russians. There are a number of problems with the standoff, starting with the probably correct notion that neither the U.S. nor its European allies are prepared to wage war even if Russia were to invade the Ukraine. Putin has said he has no intention of invading, but I'm certainly taking that one with a bit of a grain of salt. So what we have here, in effect, is a great deal of saber-rattling. So why does there appear to be a rift among Republicans in Congress over this? The leadership, while criticizing President Biden, wants him to do more to have Ukraine's back. What more? Tougher sanctions, perhaps. Yet there's no conclusive evidence that tougher sanctions will deter Russia by themselves. Greater allied efforts to destabilize Russia's financial markets would have an impact, that would be hitting Putin and his oligarch friends where it hurts. I don't know if they've got that planned. Maybe they do, but it's entirely possible that they're holding that one in abeyance. Back to the schism in the GOP. While the bosses are taking a hard line, the far right of the party is following the lead of the former president, who, as we all know, cozied up to Putin and doesn't think the U.S. should back the Ukraine at all. They attempt to bolster this position with the evidence-free claim that Biden is simply trying to further his son Hunter's business interests. Yeah, we're going to face off against the Russians and possibly walk into a Cold War, if not an actual war, to help Hunter Biden. That's People are saying this. this is not. I'm not making this stuff up. Now, This has been promoted, just in case you want to know, by such Republican luminaries, and I use that word sarcastically, as Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Lauren Boebert. All are outliers, but their message creates questions for America's allies. How serious is the U.S. about countering Russian aggression? That a talk show host and a few congressional loonies can create this kind of problem boggles the mind. It's likely that an aid package may get through Congress this week, yet the inability of Republicans to counter the right-wing fringe of their own party does show their cowardice in the face of Trumpism. One thing is for sure. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle need to better explain the stakes in the Ukraine to the American people. After Afghanistan, there's a healthy distaste For American adventures abroad. So the explanation could go something like this. And by the way, they're not paying me. At issue is the right of an Eastern European democracy to forge its own destiny free of foreign interference. After all, the Ukraine and Russia have been trading blows for the better part of eight years. For reasons that baffle me, most pundits think Ukrainian membership in NATO is a long way off. Be that as it may, would Putin actually go to war over this? Would the oligarchs who have huge sums of money in Russian financial markets, which would tank in the event he goes to war, would they have Putin's back in all this? I am not at all sure. Maybe it is, in fact just savor rattling. And what are we to make of the fact that one ally, NATO member Germany, will not be sending troops or weapons to assist the Ukraine? And exactly who is Putin supposed to negotiate with? NATO, the U.S., the EU? Lots left to be sorted. That is for absolute sure. We'll end this episode with a little bit of good news. Last week, a U.S. magistrate judge ordered the leader of the right-wing extremist group, the Oath Keepers, to remain in jail, pending a trial on charge on a charge of seditious conspiracy. Stuart Rhodes is the highest-profile person to be charged in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Rhodes has long advocated for the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. It's alleged that he helped orchestrate January 6th, which, in case anyone's forgotten, included threats to lynch the Vice President of the United States and the Speaker of the House, and five people died. Rhodes' lawyers asserted he posed no threat and should have been released on bail. As a matter of fact, they are apparently talking about appealing that judge's decision. Yet even his estranged wife testified he wasn't above using violence in his personal relationships. How anyone, and I do mean anyone, anyone, who says he wants to overthrow the government can call himself a patriot at the same time is utterly, and I do mean utterly, beyond me. Uh, Maybe, you know, Stuart Rhodes has an explanation. Research has shown, and this should trouble everybody, research has shown that more than half the Oath Keeper's membership is former military or law enforcement. Ironically, one contender for the Supreme Court has something in common with Rhodes. They're both Yale Law School graduates. Equally ironic is the fact that Rhodes and his crew were hoping Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act and thereby make their militias actually arms of the government who would keep him in office despite the fact that he lost. Stuart uh, Stuart Rhodes, that is, deserves his day in court. He is, like any defendant, innocent until proven guilty. However, I must say it does my heart good to hear people like him who think they're the sole legitimate interpreters of the U.S. Constitution, that they're being brought to justice. Give them breathing room, and they'll think they have the right to kill anyone who disagrees with them. And so would go American Democracy thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.